Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're broadcast worldwide from our studios here in Washington, D.C. Thanks to Apple iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you can download your podcast. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Thanks to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. My name's Burke Allen, and for the next three weeks on the podcast, it's a very personal show. I'm going to talk with uh, my first cousin, Larry Barrett, uh, about a subject that I've been told I should write a book about, and maybe I will someday, but first I have to gather the family history, and it's the history of my amazing parents, who many of you won't know, um, raised me from wheelchairs. They were both uh, handicapped, and uh, they were handicapped in a time when that was not a usual thing. In the 1940s, 1950s, Larry Barrett was there, and I started the conversation by asking Larry what it was like to live in my hometown of Logan, West Virginia, back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Well, uh, what it was like to grow up in Logan at the time may be surprising to some of your listeners, but uh, Logan was uh, located in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. And uh, at that time, uh, most small towns, Logan being one of those, had pretty much everything they needed to be self-sufficient and independent of the larger cities, which uh, they are today. So in those days, uh, coal was king, and uh, there, your mother and I. and lived next door to each other on, of course, uh, the, uh, a street called High Street. Right. And, and High Street overlooked, uh, I'd say, a quarter or more of the city of Logan. And uh, so we, your mom and I used to, to uh, go out on her mother, your, your grandmother, my grandmother, uh, the front porch, and uh, we would play games. And our our grandmother, referred to lovingly as Mamma, uh, joined in the games nearly every day. And uh, we we what we saw in terms of the prosperity of Logan was from the front porch. We were we overlooked the one of the main railroad tracks that led from Logan uh, eventually into places like Pittsburgh, where they had the steel mills and so forth. And I'm not exaggerating, the trains never stopped running. They, they were, you could hear them coming. You heard there's the, the, uh, the, the, this horns on the uh, on the train on the uh, uh, trains and then it was interesting they they of course burned coal right they uh, what gave the train engine the source for energy and they billowed what white smoke billowed up into the air and (laughs) i often reflect on that because when I hear a train today, and your mom would feel the same way, I'm sure, uh, it brings back very pleasant memories of a little town in the state of West Virginia that was very prosperous. And again, the fuel that made all of that happen 
was coal. So that's sort of the, the, the type of town we grew up in. Very much a one industry town. And, and my grandfather was a coal miner, as were most of the people in that town, whether they worked in the mines they, or, or were in sort of uh, supporting roles. Right. So I guess everyone was was if you weren't a miner, you worked repairing the mining machinery or you were the butcher or the baker or the, you know, the shoe repairman or the watch repairman that supported all of those folks. But it was a one industry town. It was. I mean, that's that's was the engine that drove the town. But also interesting, you were talking about, uh, you know, the the baker, the the butcher and so forth were dependent upon the, uh, the, their income from the miners pay, but that wasn't the case because in those days, miners were never paid in what we know as United States dollars. Uh, instead, all of them were paid in paper script. And it was just a small circular piece of paper, more like a, cardboard uh, in terms of its texture and the only place a miner could spend the script is in the coal company stores so that's where they shop for their food that's where they bought their washing machines that's where they bought anything and everything that uh, was in the home uh, furniture you name it, they bought it at the company store. And what was interesting, uh, there were there were uh, those who would trade the coal miner a few bucks for something that might be worth twenty dollars at the at the company store. And frequently, the only reason the miner would do that is they used to come into town on Saturdays, and that was their day, Saturday and Sunday was the day they they were off. Right. They would spend what little money they bartered or traded for uh, on beer joints. (laughs) It was how they (laughs) they got the steam off from, uh, and everything was underground coal mining at the time. It was dangerous, it was filthy, and uh and but it it provided a home and it provided a, a, a different currency but nevertheless nevertheless one that they utilized to buy their food furniture and stuff like that appliances and uh so the 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 reason that logan being a small town as it was was so prosperous mm-hmm. in, in those days uh nothing was like bread that you would buy in a grocery store today it wasn't uh brought in on a truck and delivered to the grocery store instead there were bakeries nationwide companies that would build bakeries in every little town of any size. And so the bread was made every day in the city of Logan. And it was uh, Sunbeam Bread, I believe was the name of it. That's right. That's right. Because geographically, that town and a lot of those towns in the Appalachians 
were so separated out from the rest of the world that they had to be somewhat self-sufficient. They did indeed. And, uh, and <laughs> when you say that, that for those who are uh, certainly much younger than I am, you can't imagine the roads that crisscrossed the state of West Virginia. Uh, there were no interstates. I doubt that there was anything even considered close to building an interstate type highway in West Virginia because you had to, to traverse these very large mountains and in the cities and sort of, I'll call it the developments where homes were built or the small towns and places where homes were built were located in the valleys in the, between these large mountains. So when you left Logan and you, it didn't matter which direction you were driving, you had to go over some of the most horrible, curvy, mountainous roads. And what would take you today, maybe 20 minutes, it was a three hour trip back then. And uh, an example of that, my wife grew up even further south in West Virginia, in Beckley, West Virginia. Right. And uh, when she went to college, uh, it was like an eight hour trip to get there. So uh, all the way across the state, it would seem, but you know, because yeah. the mountains, it may only be two mountains over. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But but anyway, uh, in uh, you know to to uh, respond to your question, it was a prosperous town because if you had a a, uh, uh, a someone who uh, owned the theaters, that was that was a family that owned them and they lived locally. Uh, meat packers uh, would bring in frozen carcasses from let's say Kansas City or Chicago or places like that on, on trains that had frozen cars. And then when they were delivered in Logan, there was a large, very large uh, meat packing uh, structure and it was owned by armor and company who at the time was uh, along with swift were two of the largest in the world and they had these locations in all these little towns because they couldn't they couldn't do the butchering in kansas city and chicago and other places and and uh, truck it into these places so right anyway that so that that presented the opportunity for people to go into a town like Logan, they would open stores and stores in those days, they were clothing stores, they were uh, butcher shops, um, you know, where a farmer would deliver the meat and the butcher would sell it to the consumer. So it, 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 a lot of the people who, who worked and lived in that city were coat and tie, type individuals and either work for large corporations or were people who owned their own businesses and that that again is what existed at that time in which today as everyone knows was sort of put to bed by the walmarts and the targets and that kind of stuff so but it's into that kind of world that that my mom is, is born and because it is the mid-1930s 
as the story goes, as it was passed down to me, as a baby, a five-month-old baby, uh, she contracted polio. She contracted polio uh, later in life. I think she was a young lady, uh, I would say, five to seven years of age. Okay. And interestingly, Burke, when, uh, when she contracted polio, at that time, uh, when it was under arrest, she could walk with uh, braces on her legs. But what happened to your mother is doctors at the General Hospital in Logan, uh, and these were surgeons, convinced your your grandmother, Pat, your, your mom's mother, mm-hmm. uh, to allow them to surgically improve her walking ability by doing surgery on her spine. And so obviously our our grandmother uh, was happy to, to do that because in her mind, they led her to believe that even though her daughter, even though Pat could walk, that they could, she would have even a better life if they did this surgery. Sure. So that she follows the doctor's direction. It's the doctor. The doctor's going to know what they're doing. That's exactly right. You know, everybody had faith in their local doctors and surgeons and all that stuff. And so they did surgery on your mom and she was complete. That surgery after the surgery was done, she was completely paralyzed from her her waist down, and she never ever walked a step after that. And uh, so that was the flip side of of these small towns. Uh, they well, they didn't have, know. They didn't know back then. You know, medical knowledge of polio was not great. You know, no, no, it wasn't. But what that represented was experimental surgery in my mind this is me speaking sure Uh, uh, that was i don't think people clearly understood uh, particularly uh, the men and women who who were victims of polio i mean these these doctors being well i'm sure they were well-meaning but what they did was more experimental than based upon any training or or advanced knowledge they had on on uh, things like surgery to improve the conditions of the people that uh, depend upon them or believed in them so i've heard and this may have been before you came along because you're a little bit younger than, than my mom was i've heard that she spent um an entire year one, I think it was maybe her first grade year in a full body cast from the neck down um, you know, and learned how to read I, in a body cast. You know, I don't know about that because my, it, in fact, uh, when I say she could walk, she, when uh, we were both old enough that we started palling around with each other, uh, she was, all of that was past and i wasn't a part of that i mean it happened while i was living there but but the i i do have 
photographs, black and white photographs of your mom standing on the front steps of the home that she grew up in. And she was standing there and she, and she had noticeably had those braces on, but she was standing on her own and walking right. on her own. And uh, so but that all predates you. You don't have any recollection of her being out of the wheelchair. No, 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 that did predate me. I was probably two years old at the time. I, uh, something like that. So my, uh, my grandparents, my mom's mom, who I, I remember as being a very stern lady and, and my grandfather, um, split up sometime during my mom's childhood. This was back in the day when divorces didn't happen very often. And, and look, you were a kid. You may not have any real insight on this, but maybe they talk to you about it. Uh, maybe you do. Did Do you think that that my mom's handicap and the fact that uh, that my grandmother was so protective of her, do you think that that was a factor at all into them splitting up? No, <laughs> I wish it, that were the case. Uh, your grandfather... Uh, and you can speak freely here. No one is still around to, to debate it. No, he, he lived there uh, long past the time that I had graduated from high school. Okay. And, and uh, what, he, what happened was he was what at the time was called a womanizer. <laughs> he was a ladies' man. Yeah. He was a ladies' man. And, uh, and, uh, uh, your grandmother was a very proud woman and she, she loved her family with every ounce of, of energy she had in her body. And when that happened, it, it was such a humiliation because she, she, your, your grandmother had uh, at least three of her uh, sisters who grew up in, in the Logan area and they were married to coal miners and, and of course the husbands were totally dedicated to the their wives so it stood out in your grandmother's mind as something that shouldn't have happened that she never dreamed would happen and when it did the humility was probably nearly unbearable for her so what resulted from that as you know your uncle uh pat's brother yep uh lived in the house but when he returned from world war ii he lived in the same house as pat and your grandmother and your grandfather and uh he did that i'm sure because he clearly understood that your your grandmother needed all the help she could get and not just caring for Pat, but in taking it to a level where Pat would be included in practically everything the families did. That would be going to the drive-in movies, uh, going on picnics, going downtown to movies. And, and it was your uncle who made most of that happen. Was and my grandfather, was he a, sort of an absentee father in your recollection? And was he out and gone all the time? Was he? No, no, no. no he was there. I mean, he went to work every day, came home every night, but he, he just couldn't control 
himself in terms of extracurricular activity. And, and was that a known thing or was it a big surprise when it all came out? It, oh, it was known. There was no, there was no, uh, no hiding what was going on. So, so my grandmother, Brookie, was the last to know then, or eventually she just had enough. Yeah, she had enough. And so he moved and there, there was one, two, I think it was three or four bedroom home. And uh, I, I don't know what prompted this, but he was moved to one of the bedrooms in the very back of the house. And he he ate there, he slept there, but he was never part of of any activity planned by our family, your uncle, my mom and dad. Uh, he was never included. I mean, he was sort of ostracized after what happened, but he lived there. And he gotcha. lived there long after I even uh, graduated from college. Because I know, you know, my mom, uh, once I came along and my grandfather lived to be 96, you know, it was her father. She was crazy about her father. And, and I think she was aware that all that was going on, but, you know, it didn't diminish the love that she had for her dad. I think she saw him as, as a rascal and saw her mom as, as pretty tough and uh, domineering might be a, a strong word, but I, I think certainly she saw in her mother, someone who wanted to control her life uh partly because of her handicap now did you see it that way uh there's no question but it it wasn't domineering and in so in the beginning it wasn't domineering as you would you would expect to restrict pat but rather it was domineering on everyone in the family to make sure pat was included and became a part of everything the family did and uh and so she there was no reason to to think of, of your grandmother domineering pat at that time okay. uh, and that would have been through high school and yeah, because all she was making certain of and she even had a house built in this, she owned a, a house with a lot of property, so she had a second home built on that property, and that's where my mom and dad lived. So it was a, it was all hands on deck type thing. So you had my uncle, you had my grandfather, you had, and my grandmother, and then you had my mom and dad. And Next door. Then yeah. it was a structure and a a thoughtful design structure to to uh, expose Pat to the resources needed to make her feel like she was just she was no different than any of us. And I've yeah. read that that back in that day in the 1940s and 1950s, especially the uh, the 40s, that if you had a handicap, whatever that might be, whether it's polio or or something else that, um, you were sort of tucked away and hidden away from society. And uh, and I don't know if, if you saw that in other families, but it sounds like my grandmother took great strides to make sure that that didn't happen with my mom. And that would be that. And so that that's where I go uh, when, or where I went when you were asking about a domineering grandmother. Uh, 
It, that's true, Burke. Uh, there were no accommodations for, for handicapped people, specifically people that couldn't walk. Uh, someone had to be with them. Uh, even if, if my grandmother took her downtown and, you know, pushed the wheelchair, when she got down there, the, nothing was so accommodating that she could get her up the steps and, you know, over the curbs in the city. Right. And no ramps, no elevators, no, no, none of the things you see today. No, nothing like that. So it, it was a burden that I, when I witnessed it, when I witnessed other people who were confronted with that, it really was a showstopper in terms of their engagement in life. But because of your grandmother, because of the dedication of your uncle, and because mom and dad lived next door and everything that any of them did anytime, uh, Pat was always included. And so, so, so now you have a situation where, uh, either my uncle or my dad could take, they took Pat everywhere, took her downtown, took her to the, uh, grocery stores, uh, let her go shopping in the ladies' uh, clothing stores. And, and I never witnessed anyone else having that kind of support. At the core of all of that was your grandmother. And so she, she I, I would, if I were using the word dominate, domineering, it would be her behavior over those who she, <laughs> she demanded that they be, that Pat become an integral part of their lives. An equal. Thanks again to my cousin Larry Barrett for filling in the family history. On next week's show, we're going to talk about how a lady in a wheelchair, specifically my mom, was able to graduate from public high school at a time when there were no elevators in that school and go on to get married and have a family and lots more. This is a very personal Big Time Talker podcast. Thank you for checking it out. Thanks to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.